Christian fiction is so cringe and cheesy, so maybe we can just ignore it. Some critics act like this is true, but today's guest is challenging this line. He is Daniel Silliman, the news editor at Christianity Today and the author of the new nonfiction book, Reading Evangelicals. In this book, he surveys five best-selling novels, including Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, Tim LaHaye's and Jerry B. Jenkins's Left Behind, and William Paul Young's The Shack. Why did Christian readers love these books, and how did these novels define their fans' imaginations and help build our evangelical communities? Welcome anew to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we find and explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and apply the meanings of these stories to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, and I publish Lorehaven. I'm also the co-author of another nonfiction book about fiction, and it's called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and my real-life tragic backstory is that I did not grow up reading Christian novels. I wasn't really aware of them, including novels like This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti, which we'll talk about today because this is episode 84, How Did Best-Selling Christian Novels Build Evangelical Culture? And we'll be discussing a nonfiction book called Reading Evangelicals with author Daniel Silliman. I think some of our listeners would say it's a great tragedy that we grew up reading Christian fiction. And <laughs> if that's you, this episode is also for you because we're going into the nuances of these stories, the good, the bad, the ugly, but more importantly, their effect. Like if you grew up adjacent to Christianity, especially in the United States, what people would call evangelical, you were affected by these stories. And it takes a historian like Daniel Silliman to come along and tell you some about why. We were interested in his book as early as January 2021. We'll include the links to our news post in the show notes, as well as the cover story from the recent Christianity Today, What's True About Christian Fiction. If you're a subscriber to that imminent publication, you can get that story. You can also get the purchase link for the book in our show notes. Very quick stop by the concession stand. A lot of stuff here. We may include the show notes, but not mentioned here. You hear us say Christian fiction, we just understand that as a Christian wrote the fiction, but we're also talking about Christian uh, fiction by Christians for Christians uh, for this subculture. We think that that subculture is necessary. We don't reject it out of hand. Christians formed this subculture as a response to being marginalized in other markets, and you can get more info about that in our show notes. And today's guest is a historian first. Uh, he's analyzing this from more objective vantage we're the fanboys here. You know, there's a little bit of interest there because he grew up with some of these books, as you will hear. Uh, but that's his that's his perspective. So I actually wrote a similar article about some of these themes earlier this year, how political punditry has taken over Christian popular subcultures. Those are my views, which overlap some with his. But this isn't a, primarily a class or it's a fiction book club. It's not that. And instead, it's just like we're asking questions after the class. I've read the book, Reading Evangelicals. I really liked it. And we also explore only three titles he goes into. He also talks about a romance novel and an Amish novel. Uh, we don't do that much on Fantastical Truth. Uh, no offense to anybody. It's just our focus. And uh, we're going to talk about This Present Darkness and Left Behind and The Shack. Now, Stephen, when I first heard about this book back in January, I got to admit, I feared that this was going to be a book written to an audience of haters of Christian fiction and people that, like you said, regret that they grew up reading these books. But I don't think that's what this book, the approach this book really took. You said it's not a fanboy book either, but it's it's something in between, wouldn't you say? Exactly. It's a very respectful book, but it is objective. You know, he's not going into these novels and saying, oh, this is amazing, you know. 
left behind is true. Preparest thou for antichrist. <laughs> you know, he's, he's not throwing out the Amish fiction or the romance fiction. He's just asking with respect, Hey, what did the fans like in these books and how did these books help create, uh, these subculture conditions among Christians, particularly in the United States? First, let's go to our first sponsor for this episode, returning champion Andrew J. Chamberlain with his science fiction novel, The Centauri Survivors. Here's the description of that book. When a habitable planet is discovered just four light years from Earth, governments and private corporations rush to build a ship to take the first humans there. But only a few of the colonists wake up from cryosleep after the 60-year journey, and as their ship comes into orbit around the new planet, they find themselves surrounded by death. As the survivors scramble to make sense of what has happened, they find their own lives under threat and pursued by their enemies. They escape to the surface of the new planet. Caught between their human adversaries and whatever the planet throws at them, the survivors fight to stay alive as circumstances drive them towards a final deadly confrontation. This is book one of the Centauri Sequence series praised by one reviewer who said, quote, this gripping piece of fiction, well-written and worth recommending, end quote. You'll find the cover, more info, and the purchase link in our show notes for this episode 84, as well as at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. From there, let's go straight to our interview. Daniel Silliman is a journalist and a historian. He's the news editor for Christianity Today, the author of Reading Evangelicals, the history of best-selling evangelical fiction, and he teaches humanities. Daniel spent several years as a crime reporter outside Atlanta before pursuing higher education in Germany, earning an MA from, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Daniel, uh, Tübingen University and a doctoral degree from Heidelberg University. He was a teaching fellow at the University of Notre Dame from 2016 to 2017 and a Lilly postdoctoral fellow at Valparaiso University from 2017 to 2019. He's also reported and uh, been the news editor edited news coverage for Christianity Today since 2019, and as he informs us, he has just arrived here via tricycle, being very polite not to correct my mispronunciations. Daniel, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Mispronunciations we can totally work with. Fake German accent, we probably should. You know, that is very fake German accent. It's the, not even up to the level of Mel Blanc uh, doing his best uh, Hitler in the 40s. Yeah, yeah, for sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll work well, on as, that. As the resident German, <laughs> uh, as the resident German ancestry person, I, I give you my blessing. So I don't well, even know. Down. I have some Norwegian ancestry in there to the point where if I saw the uh, the Norwegian character from the Marvel Thor movies, I thought, wow, that looks so much like my uh, so much like my dad. So Daniel's here uh, to give us a little history, as we've mentioned, uh, and to survey these uh, best-selling evangelical fiction novels particularly emphasizing this present darkness left behind and even the shack. In fact, if you will open your copy of Reading Evangelicals, which you need to get, link in the show notes, uh, this book will give you the tragic backstory that surprised me, even though I knew some of it, of the titular author, or rather the, uh, the front-facing author of The Shack, William Paul Young. It's all in there. Really tragic. Uh, added some sympathy for me. So, Daniel, how did you first discover biblical truth and become aware of uh, Christian-made fiction of these bestsellers and otherwise? Which is to say, how did you accept Aslan into your heart? <laughs> yeah, I grew up in a Christian family that um, my dad was Jesus people. We grew up in that 
charismatic evangelical stuff in Northern California. And my parents went through a, a crisis of faith when I was nine. And that led them to want to be more radical, much, much more radical. So we moved to Texas and joined an apocalyptic back to the land commune. Oh dear. And oh. I lived there for my basically middle school years, like nine to 15. We farmed with horses and made our own clothes, made our own soap, and waited for the Antichrist to come kill us all. And we got kicked out when I was about 15. Like we got expelled from this very conservative, weird religious group. And that meant rediscovery. There was a lot of vertigo in that moment. There was a lot of, um, well, what is the world if that was wrong, if we're not that anymore? Are there other Christians? Are they doing real stuff? What do they think about things? The physical Christian bookstore was kind of a good space for me in that moment. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot from, I mean, I was a kid who got dropped off at libraries and bookstores a lot. So the Christian bookstore was not the only one, but I, I spent a bunch of time just kind of in there thinking, yeah, who are Christians? What is the range of them? How do I relate to them? You know, and at the same time, rediscovering a Christianity that could be about Jesus, that could be about grace, like all of that was happening together. But yeah, I spent time in Christian bookstores, and that meant discovering a bunch of stuff um, from Christian music to, you know, cool cross-chain necklaces and wondering if I should be wearing those. Would that make me feel better and make me a better Christian? And things like Frank Peretti. So that's actually when I when I first read Frank Peretti. So when did you accept uh, Tao, Captain of the Host, as your Lord and Savior? <laughs> this, present <laughs> this, present this present darkness, yes. And yeah. we've talked about this present darkness. Of course, it, it had to be one of our earliest episodes of Fantastical Truth. Link in the show notes again. Uh, Daniel, I actually hear the voices of thousands of fans listening to your story. And although they probably did not move to an actual commune in Texas, they can resonate. Uh, mm. Even I, I've never been in that situation, but even I'm resonating a little bit because as surprising as it sounds to some Christians who were too cool for the Christian bookstore and they saw that as an outpost of the insular subculture to many other Christians from more conservative or even legalistic or even cultic upbringings, uh, they look at something like the Christian bookstore and they see that as mainstream. They see that as a tool by which God brought them into a broader culture like evangelical culture can be so insular and sheltered but to a lot of people it was a wider world of these amazing stories and what if books like a like frank Purdy's this present darkness yeah and evangelicalism i mean as a historian i spent a lot of time thinking about what evangelicalism is and it's useful to think about how it's not a denomination. Yes. And most of us, you know, if you grow up Christian or if you are Christian now, your your primary experience of that is probably church. But that's a very local community, and that's a very specific community and a specific tradition. And evangelicalism is this trans-denominational movement. So what are the experiences you have in your day-to-day life that give you the sense of being a part of a larger thing than your particular church 
or than your particular denomination or your particular, um, you know, um, community, whether that's a narrow community like um, one megachurch or a broader community like Southern Baptist or something. And the bookstores are one of those things, right? Book markets are one of those things that, that help us participate in this larger conversation about faith and that give us a kind of a, a sense of the imagined community of greater evangelicalism. Yeah, it's so fascinating, Daniel, to hear your story of growing on this commune, being kicked out, and then that kind of creating this own crisis of faith, but also this this curiosity and this hunger to know what other Christians exist out there, what other kinds of Christianity exist out there, because that is very similar to the plot of Tosca Lee's book, The Line Between, which we mm. reviewed and talked about in episode eight of this podcast a long time ago. Maybe that's something you'd like to read next, but uh, to our to our listeners out there, you know, uh, if if you've read this book, you you could probably see some of the parallels here. It's just so interesting, though, that that's part of your past. Where I feel like the, the commune, living off the land, is in a lot of people's present or perhaps their future. I have a good friend now that's going to buy some land out somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Texas, try to start a farm and you know work, work remotely by you know the Elon Musk, uh, Starlink kind of thing. And another friend of ours uh, lives out in Utah, middle of nowhere. A lot of people are kind of going back to that now, which is interesting. It's this whole Benedict option thing. Uh, but of course, it's a totally different uh, world now with the with the internet and technology. But I imagine that when, when you were growing up there, that that was very isolating. And so going to that bookstore was was like your eyes being opened out. What were some of those experiences like when you read those books at first? Was it like, oh, wow, this is what I'd hoped to find out there, or, or this is what I was always afraid of, what I was told to kind of stay away from? Like, did you have sort of that push and that pull towards these other stories that you read? I would say, first of all, that the <laughs> the farm wasn't the problem in, in the childhood experience that I had. So people uh, going and moving to the country and buying some chickens, that's great. More power to you. Once there's a prophet who tells you that only he hears from God, that's that's when you should, you know, move back to the city, get rid of those chickens. Yep. Um, <laughs> I guess there was a push and pull. I don't remember a lot of push i mean i remember thinking all these other people have these common experiences that i don't have right there's that sense of alienation you're coming in from your own particular experiences and you're reading this book and and you know in any novel you read you're partly thinking well who did they expect to read this book who are the normal audiences who are the expected audiences am i the target audience am i a little bit the target audience and then I always think it's interesting how wildly different people read the novels. So so I've been thinking a lot about that first time I read Frank Peretti, for example, This Present Darkness. And the uh, the journalist character, the female journalist character, totally, I thought she was great. Oh, and Bernice. She, she, yeah, she's she cool. Is no, she is not the hero. <laughs> she's not, doesn't have a a huge role, but you know, she discovers the truth right away before actually any of the Christian characters do. 
and she sticks with it. Like she's actually thrown in jail on false charges and refuses to change her mind. And that totally enthralled me and gave me the first idea. Maybe I want to be a journalist. That could be a a good career, which is clearly not the point of of the novel, right? That's clearly not the big story, but that was a pretty transformative effect on, on, on me. Yeah. Later I came, I came back to them well, I came back to Christian bookstores when I was living in Germany, followed my wife to Germany. She was starting a campus ministry at the University of Tübingen, which is in the southwest of the country. And I went back to college and I studied American studies and got a master's and then a PhD. When we'd come back to the U.S. for a visit, you'd have this kind of reorienting process. Like, oh, yeah. Where is everybody? Reverse <laughs> culture going shock. On? Yeah. yeah, reverse culture shock. And there's so much, you know, I'm still on Twitter in Germany. Like, I still kind of know, but being in physical spaces is different. So visiting the Christian bookstore was one of the things I would do to kind of, okay, what are people, what's going on? And then I started reading them um, academically and started really researching novels and reading novels and reading a lot of them as part of this project, which becomes this book, Reading Evangelicals, as part of a project of telling a different kind of story of 20th century evangelicals, doing a cultural history, history with novels uh, in an American studies program in Germany. So it was very popular and no one was confused by it. But trying to use the bestsellers and their readers to construct a history of what evangelicalism is and the varieties and nuances. Yeah, you explore that in the introduction to reading evangelicals. And on page 11, you kind of state your mission purpose there. I want to tell the story of American evangelicalism that captures this, the freedom of the individual readers, their imagination, and how they're also part of this larger community, which is real and imagined, and how that ongoing conversation is shaped and given structure by institutions and networks which limit the discussion but also make it possible. I want to tell the story of how all that works together to produce this religious identity, evangelical. I, I like the word there, identity, because as you've mentioned, this is, you know, evangelical is not a denomination. Like, I, I think it's more of a, a, a color, like a primary color on a spectrum. Mm. Like, you, you have to see it. You can't really describe it to someone else. You can only say, well this object shares that color. And then this one is also a little bit blue. Like we're describing the color blue. This over here is kind of blue, but kind of also a little purple. And, you know, it's difficult to put into words. And so I think you are totally on the right track then to go to the imagination that is shared by a lot of people who use that label evangelicals. Uh, You can't just describe it even using doctrines or uh, institutions uh, or specific denominations because it's so overlapping and so sprawling. It's organized chaos, really. You know, even though we don't have a lot of physical Christian bookstores anymore, uh, it's still there. And so I, I really liked this book. I've read it all cover to cover, even a lot of the footnotes, because I wanted to see where you were coming from, uh, from the re- research perspective. But I also, I just appreciate the concept in giving this field of fiction, which, as we've mentioned, is, uh, is often just dismissed. It's due respect. You're affectionate, is how I read the book. But you're also objective, uh, kind of passionately dispassionate. I think that comes through in the style. Uh, and I also I learned a lot. You know, I've, I've read three fifths, at least, of the books that you've covered. And I'm a fan of at least two of those. And we'll go into those uh, point by point. 
briefly, I want to mention that this book does share a truth that I didn't know before. It was the original title that Frank Freddy used when he was pitching this present darkness. So you'll find that in that chapter, which leads to my big question. My next big question here, Daniel, what was the purpose uh, that you hoped to follow by exploring these top selling Christian fiction uh, from that more academic perspective? Yeah, I wanted to think about imagination, as you talked about. What is an evangelical imagination like? Um, How does the imagination shape the experience of the faith? And then belief, the questions of belief were really important to me. As I see it, the core of each Christian fiction ends up being some version of the question, Jesus died and rose again. What are you going to do on your Tuesday? Like they're all about living out your faith. And why does it matter that this character believes in Jesus when they confront these types of things? Or why does it matter that this character takes the Bible seriously when these events happen around them? And so trying to think really carefully, how do we imagine belief? How do we experience belief in the world today? And using that to tell the story of evangelicalism. The second thing was looking at structures. I spent a lot of time thinking about bookstores and book distribution and publishers. So it's not just that an author had an idea and this idea infects. Um, There's a lot of sort of that kind of language that happens when historians try to talk about novels that like somehow the authors have forced all these people to have certain types of beliefs. I wanted to think about the structure that makes this stuff available and that holds really different answers to the question of belief together in one space and in one conversation. That makes sense. And, and, and I'm interested in that. Uh, I mean, I had, the, I had the question written here, like, what does it matter that we ask, what is an evangelical? Uh, I actually just so far in the conversation begin to see why, because if you identify as a biblical Christian, generally in a Western or American type culture, Uh, This is a question, who am I? Which is one of the basic questions that people ask of themselves. Uh, But then even from outside evangelicaldom, uh, it helps people, whether they're historians or sociologists or whatever, to ask this question. Because as we can see in a lot of mainstream media, people will conflate that with a political identity or some kind of um, set uh, cultural traits uh, that doesn't apply to everybody who would say, oh, yes, I'm an evangelical Christian, or I go to a Baptist church or a conservative Presbyterian church or whatever. I begin to see that that's why this question matters. Although from my vantage, I'm interested in this mainly from the inside, uh, mm-hmm. but as a, as a matter of, of the stories, a, a fantastical truth from Loraven, we're, we're interested in not stories or art for their own sake, uh, but as means of getting to that imagination, which is a gift of God by which we glorify him. So we see the stories as means of glorifying God, their acts of worship. And then so much the better if you have a story that is exploring truth, truthfully, but also with excellence. And people have, of course, debated and sometimes dismissed Christian-made fiction, which is how I would define Christian fiction in general, uh, or Christian uh, fiction by Christians for a Christian market. And people will dismiss that as being Uh, inferior or always having bad theology. And yeah, you'll get some bad theology in there. But uh, again, I I appreciate how engaging you are with all five of these titles uh, in the book. Yeah, there is just to briefly get to the to the why question there is. So first of all, 
there's a lot of historians who've approached evangelicals as important because they're a political block. And mm. part of part of what yeah. I was doing was trying to say this movement should be better thought of as a as a culture, as a subculture, than yeah. as a political thing in particular. There are some politics, that's true. But if you primarily think it of political as political, I think you end up misunderstanding more than you understand. There's some other people who primarily approached it approached it as theological, and so they'll find one or two or five sort of theological propositions that evangelicals believe. And theology is really important. I think Christians who believe the Bible and go to church and love Jesus, yeah, they absolutely care about theology, but theological concerns change over time. And it's actually really hard to track those changes and think about the, you know, why were they so concerned about the rapture at this moment mm-hmm. and so conter- concerned about the Trinity at this moment or Christ's death and resurrection and the truth of that resurrection at this moment. And um, if you just focus on the theological claims, you kind of miss that. The other explanation I hear all the time for why people are interested in the question of what is an evangelical is, hey, was I one? Like people Uh. often grow up in really specific circumstances, particular, peculiar churches, and they're trying to figure out, was my Church of the Nazarene like everybody else's church? Mm. Do I fit into this larger story? Like how, how does my own experience fit in this larger history? And then just as a historian, if you want to understand a whole chunk of our history, books that were read by millions of people seems like a pretty good way to do it. So I'm, yes. I'm elevating this literature just because it was popular and it was popular to masses of audiences. And that alone, as a historian, as someone who studies American culture, makes it worth digging. Into. Yeah. Well, you're also first to the scene because I think with the exception of the late Tim LaHaye, all of the authors that you've surveyed are still alive and several of them are still active, along with many others of bestsellers that you weren't able to cover in the book. Uh, Zach and I just met uh, Frank Preddy for the first time back at Realm Makers in July. Uh, he is no longer an active writer. He calls himself an author emeritus, and he says he's retired. I myself hope that it's more like a Hayao Miyazaki retirement than a usual retirement. But my guess is, you know, maybe he just needs to kick back and watch what happens on the scene, whether it's evangelical or whatever. But he's he's a great guy. Uh, he's his own. He's his own critic sometimes. When uh, when he when people are asking him about his own books, like several people want to keep the flame alive for the this present darkness fandom, and Peretti himself has kind of moved on. And I, as much as I like that book, he's also written many great books that are arguably better than this present darkness, just in terms of their creative excellence. And my favorite is the Visitation. Let's pause for our second sponsor for this episode, returning sponsor, Novel Marketing Podcast. This is hosted by Thomas Umstead Jr., the longest running podcast focusing on the production of Christian-made novels or any novel, really. Uh, Thomas is an expert in this field, and although Fantastical Truth is about the fan side of it, we receive and wonder at these stories. Uh, Thomas is talking about the best ways to make them. One of my favorite episodes is his Ten Commandments of Book Marketing episode, which includes commandment number six, thou shalt own thine own platform. And in this point, Thomas is exploring uh, kind of the hazards of big tech and the uh, notions that some authors of fiction get 
uh, that they can do all of their publicity via Facebook or via the Twitters. And that brings some hazards. Uh, if you are not paying for this service, as Thomas rightly observes, uh, you are not receiving this service. Uh, you're, you're not getting a product from the service. You are the product from the service. And in the worst examples, these services can actually, you know, cancel you or they just change their algorithm and suddenly you're not doing so well. Uh, in this episode, Thomas explores how authors and really anybody come to think of it uh, needs to own their own platform. Use email list uh, services, use subscription services, be willing to pay money for stuff so that you can own your own content and not have your complete audience list uh, stolen or taken out from under you. You can learn more by subscribing to the Novel Marketing Podcast. We will, of course, include that link in our show notes for episode 84, as well as at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. So what, what if we uh, just take, what, what if we just start as an example, not giving away everything that you found out about this present darkness and uh, the factors that led up to it, like some of the Christian cultural assumptions back in the 80s that led to that. Uh, you'll have to get the book and explore that chapter to find out. But uh, we can zero in on a lot of the themes that you found organic to the story. I mean, and I can just guess, having grown up with it, you've had some time to look at this, you know, both as a reader of the book and then as a scholar of the book. But I, I, uh, I liked a lot of this, including your quote on page 78, which says, quote, conspiracies depend on keeping secret meetings from becoming public. The novel is not just staging cultural conflicts. It is inviting readers to see how the staging itself is part of the cultural conflict. The first political fight is always about the rules of political fights. This present darkness returns again and again to the conflict of what is allowed in meetings and who is allowed in meetings. The first pragmatic principle of the public sphere, its publicness, is shown to be suspect. End quote. And you tie that in with the meetings that the demons have, the meetings that the angels have, and the meetings that the people have. And you have the Omni Corporation and the college people who are trying to have their secret meetings. And I think that that is a fantastic observation about the form of the story kind of challenging this idea as well as the substance. So how the story is told matters for this idea as much as what is happening. And then even now you have people debating the staging itself, the rules of political fights in meetings with all the school board stuff that's going on, at least contemporary to this recording. So this is still happening. And I, I wouldn't say that Peretti made it happen. He just observed maybe a characteristic of this culture conflict uh, that is universal back then in the 80s as well as today. Yeah, Peretti, I mean, people praise Peretti and talk about Peretti's angels and demons, but he really, really is the master of writing about meetings. I like and the people <laughs> parts. I, you know, it, it's kind but of the demon meetings yeah. are amazing too. The demons oh, they, have well, like pulp. Awesome. calls to order. Like it's like, how does demons run meetings? How do angels run meetings? How do good people run meetings? How to bad. And I don't know if you guys have been an adult for a while, but it turns out there are a lot of meetings and having, yeah, a few. having a novelist really get into those is really fascinating. And I, I do see that all around me. I read a story the other day about the Southern Baptists and the fights they're having over the executive committee deciding whether or not to investigate sexual abuse. The new head of the executive committee was like, man, I was not prepared. I hadn't read Robert's Rules of Order. And I've really had to like invest time in my Robert's Rules of Order expertise. Meetings are really important. And Peretti sees that so well. 
or even just this week, uh, there's a uh, viral uh, Dave Chappelle special on Netflix. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's upset a very uh, vocal community that came to a Netflix exec meeting uninvited. Well, actually, allegedly, they kind of crashed this meeting. Mm. And and then one of them staged a walkout, and uh, another one's gotten fired now for sharing internal metrics and, and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, it started with this, oh, you're not supposed to be in this meeting and now you're in. And then yeah. everyone's like, well, hey, what goes on in these meetings? And, you know, and it's like, well, you know, there's some things that are private and there's some things that are public. And it's, it's, it's all that all over again, you know, because we absolutely and that line between public and private is so debated and so not spelled out ahead of time all the time. Right. Well, and we, you know, we are a society that is very rules oriented. Uh, you know, we're, we're a guilt innocent society as compared to like honor shame societies or fear power societies. So following the rules, uh, you know, creating the rules, uh, you know, actually creating the rules is the real power. You know, if you're mm-hmm. the one that, that tells everyone else how it is and hold them to the rules, you know, and a, and a cynical person would say, well, that's the whole point of the law. It's just to control other people that, that you want to control. So. You know, I, I think you're right that Peretti had his, his finger on the, on the pulse of the, This is very much a Western instinct. Where else did you see him really resonating with the, the culture as it already was? You know, because we can talk about how it influenced culture and maybe created parts of subculture. But, you know, historically, as you've looked at it, where do you see him really tapping into the sentiments of the evangelical church? I mean, the thing that really stood out to me when I went back and studied it closely for for this was the sense the sense that he has of faith as struggle i mean the christian market the evangelical market before peretti is primarily romance novels which i know is not your guys's cup of tea that's chapter one in your book you go over love comes softly and how that created that market in the sense that there is such a thing as genre fiction for evangelicals is really just synonymous with romance novels. And what you see in the romance novels is this idea of faith leading to flourishing. I trust Jesus and then I have a good life and I have a good life in my particular circumstance, you know, in the suburbs with my nuclear family, um, et cetera, et cetera. And Peretti, just as a person, was not having that experience, you know? And so mm-hmm. and so he is a burnt-out Assemblies of God pastor. He's gone to work in a factory at this time. He's he's tried to write novels and gotten little to no interest. And, you know, it's just his life is hard. He's living in a mobile home trailer in a place where it rains all the time. And this is just not trust Jesus and you'll have the best life ever. He starts to reimagine the struggle as evidence of faith. He starts to reimagine just having a hard life as the byproduct of your commitment to Jesus, of your commitment to biblical truth, of your um, worldview differences with your neighbors. And that that's really fascinating. And as I started looking at readers and trying to see what they saw in the book, you really see there's a wide range of people who resonate with that really deeply, but also in wildly different ways. So two readers that I talk about, um, one is Jim Daly, who is at that point going to join Focus on the Family. And he describes um, driving all night with his wife 
to go to focus on the family. And he's specifically excited about starting that job because they're shifting from child rearing stuff or they're expanding from just child rearing Christian stuff to more political activism. And he's really excited about getting involved in politics as a Christian. And he and his wife stay up all night driving and reading Frank Ferretti. They like have the flashlight on and they read this novel and the struggle of the novel for him is like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's like the struggle over politics and the religious right stuff that I'm interested in doing in the public sphere. At the same time, the most, um, the most famous early reader of Frank Peretti is Amy Grant. Oh, and Amy huh. Grant is the biggest Christian pop star at this time. She's the one Christian musician who's crossed over and had really, really big success. And that success comes with massive amounts of pain. She is struggling in her marriage. Her husband feels overshadowed by her. He's also a musician and is known as Mrs. Mr. Amy Grant and kind of hates it. Uh, her husband also has a drug addiction. She has a miscarriage. She's thinking of running away and actually has a plan at one point to go to Maine or something like to abandon her life just because it's hard. You know, it's wow. so hard. And it's in that context that someone gives her a copy of This Present Darkness, which they happen to find. <laughs> and it's one of those days when she can't get out of bed because she's so depressed that she's reading this. And the struggle of faith, the struggle of how faith leads you to have conflict in your life and being true to your calling and true to your faith can lead you into these struggles. That's what speaks to her. And she's not thinking about it as politics at all, but she is thinking about just more on the personal level. Yeah. How, yeah. Well, what happens if I imagine angels cheering me on when good things are happening mm. and demons delighting when bad things are happening? Like what, like it's just pretend, but what happens when I imagine my life like that? Uh, yeah. The, the demon of deception raking its claws through your hair, you through know? your brains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Into your skull. Absolutely. <laughs> and so she, she actually, um, makes the book a bestseller. She starts uh, holding it up at her massively popular concerts wow. and giving a little spiel, which is like the best, uh, yeah, promo so that the note to aspiring authors. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Note to publishers. I, I think um, it can only happen once, uh, even if Amy Grant is still, uh, is still as, as top of the charts as she used to be. Yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to replicate, but they had no idea. And, and Peretti talks about, you know, he's working in a ski factory yeah. and he gets in the like break room of the factory he gets calls from the publisher updating how many copies are sold <laughs> every month and like it's like 10 20 100 and he's just like thinking i am never going to get out of this ski factory i'm going to work here forever and then suddenly it's like 10,000 and he had, they have no idea why they're just like what is happening it actually takes them a while to figure out well, you go into that chapter in, in the backstory of how the, uh, the the Dennis brothers had acquired Peretti's story and you give away the original title and everything. And like some of that's public knowledge, but you put it all together and suddenly you see the story behind the story. And you see how then this story also kind of was an imaginative working out of Peretti's own struggles, just as Amy Grant saw it. And I'm sure that thousands of readers and myself among them, even though I caught up to the book in the 90s, thousands of readers saw this as an imaginative framework to explain their lives you know a, a private struggle even you could then look to this imagined version of the real world struggle air quotes there 
you know, not necessarily that every reader was familiar with demons trying to take over a college campus or a small town, but it was a reminder in micro and in macro, you know, the human side of the story as well as the spiritual realm uh, that there are these struggles going out there. The title taken from that verse in Ephesians that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities. I mean, that's a biblical concept. Uh, angels and demons are biblical concepts. And Peretti admits this was him speculating about how these things might play out. I think he would probably write it a lot differently now where he's still active. I mean, if this present darkness were somehow published in the year 2020, uh, pandemic aside, he'd probably play it a lot differently. But back then, that's where he was. Uh, it eventually led to a sequel, Piercing the Darkness, and then he wrote other novels where the angels and demon struggles weren't happening on the pages. And then, as I've mentioned, my favorite is uh, is actually The Visitation in 1999, which, in, in my view, I haven't read Illusion yet, which is his final novel. But The Visitation to me is peak Peretti, exploring evangelical culture and what it does to people. Uh, even when they are struggling to follow Jesus, there's still that personal struggle there. Uh, but then there's also a cult movement in a small town and actual false miracles that seem to work. And this false Christ who seems to be doing a better job uh, than the actual Jesus did. I always tell people, I think the visitation is a great novel. And, and when people don't like Christian novels, I often send them to the visit, the visitation. That is exactly to, what I do to kind of challenge that. But I, but I always tell people, it starts out with someone who's done with church, who's just, I've been a pastor, I've been a Christian, I still believe in God, but ugh, I am done with church. And it ends with a small town parade where three Jesuses are physically brawling in the street. And if that doesn't intrigue you, I don't know what to do. Like, that's that's the best I got for you. It's absolutely fabulous. It's an amazing, <laughs> amazing yeah. piece of work. It's a product of its time, but it also transcends the time, you know, like 22 years ago, that's pretty exploring what all of the kids these days are calling deconstruction. And for mm. me, reading that novel, starting to read it on release day, uh, I literally believe that God used that novel to help teach me a lot of things that I may have otherwise confronted in reality. I mean, Travis, the hero of the visitation goes through deconstruction of a sort, not by that name and certainly not all the way down to the foundation. But he's just going back. He's looking over all this church work that he's done, like like Peretti did, obviously. I mean, the story mm -hmm. is semi-autobiographical. Peretti's confirmed it several times. But that story helped, helped me kind of put my guard up and kind of work through those things at the imaginative level before the chance of working them out more disastrously uh, on, the, on the real level. And it's worth thinking about how the books are and aren't theological. Yes, right? yes. When Peretti is talking about angels and demons, he's not writing a, a dissertation on this. He's doing imaginative work. And one of in grad school, when I was looking at this stuff, the question that really grabbed me and that I thought, oh, I have to, I have to answer this question was I was explaining, actually with Left Behind, I was explaining the theology of the rapture and the dispensations and the, the Antichrist. And my professor said, yeah, but why is it fiction? Like, I understand the theology, mm. I understand that there's politics, but, but fiction doesn't ask us to believe, it asks us to suspend disbelief. Yes. It says, what if it were like this? You, and you always have the freedom in that you're never compelled to suspend disbelief, you always have the freedom to put it down, 
to walk away, to return to reality as you know it in your day-to-day life. And it's a, it's an invitation to play. It's an invitation to try on an experience that you may or may not find to be plausible, much less, um, you know, so compelling that you want that to be your life experience forever. And that can be a really powerful way to explore theological concepts while still giving everybody a lot of freedom to exercise their own creativity, to adapt, adopt, reject, borrow some of these theological concepts. So there's certain people, certainly people who read this present darkness and left with like an explicit, I'm going to do spiritual warfare in my life now. And it's going to look like what happened in this novel. I took it as an instruction manual. Yeah. And I think, and I think that upset Peretti. Um, it did. He said so in the interview with world magazine. I think you referenced that in the, in your chapter. And he um, includes in later editions, there's a sort of disclaimer where he says like, Hey, this is me imagining and me speculating. I'm not convinced that as much of the sport, spiritual warfare stuff that happened in the late eighties and early nineties is from him. No. I think there are some other sources that have kind of gotten lost in the retelling. Fuller Seminary started teaching what they called power evangelism, which involved spiritual warfare with C. Peter Wagner and John Wimber. Um, and they trained a lot of people in prayer walking and exorcism and talking about demons. And um, and I don't know that the novel had quite the <laughs> the sweeping influence, but it but it did affect a lot of people and did shape a lot of people. But it's worth remembering that readers are not confused about novels being novels for the most part. Yeah, a lot of cultural analysis just assumes the public is dumb and doesn't know what they're doing. And that if you dig into readers and reader responses, it turns out they're they're pretty. They don't always read correctly. I'm doing air quotes for a listening audience. They don't always read correctly, but um, they do always read creatively. And they're never just like compelled to read things a certain way. And I think that goes for Christian readers as well as secular readers. Uh, we'll talk about Left Behind in a moment and a similar effect there. Uh, this present darkness, I mean, I was not there in the 80s for the phenomena. I think I was alive, but not conscious of uh, these sorts of things. But from what I can tell uh, from your book and other sources, Peretti's novel took off because, in, in, in my view, uh, the phrase that I've used in other articles is, uh, it was talking about a very important topic, B-I-T. Spiritual warfare was a very important topic. And then in the 90s, end times was a very important topic. Uh, and then later on, even with the shack, um, challenging the Christian institutions and uh, dealing with suffering was a very important topic. Sure. And so e- even though people were still, as you said, creatively engaging it and, you know, feeling invited to play this out in a simulated world, I think it also fulfilled that pragmatic streak that a lot of evangelicals have. Why should I read this book if it isn't directly about me and the struggles I'm feeling or the way that I see the world? That's some of what we hope to challenge, not to say that fiction is just this pretty collectible you put on the shelf and it's just there for aesthetic. Like it, it is something that helps you you know, get in the dirt of good fiction, good stories will equip you for the real world. But I think that equipping is not as a tool to bludgeon another guy or to, you know, take apart your house or build your house. Uh, it's a tool to help you rest. And I really see value in Christians understanding the need for fiction to help us with our Sabbathing, 
not just Sunday morning, not just, you know, a revival service at the, at the big church, uh, but to help us rest and prepare for the Monday through Saturday for the real life. Uh, whereas I see a lot of people assuming that if we are to have Christian fiction at all, uh, then it ought to be of immediate practical value for evangelism or political advocacy or understanding some very important topic. I don't see it that way. Um, I think imagination exists to glorify God, whether or not it seems important at the time. Like the visitation wasn't about, you know, Y2K or something that all the nonfiction books at the time were about. It wasn't even about the end times, but it prepared me not for the present, but for uh, the future, like future faith struggles. And so that's why I call it yeah, like you, one one of the best stories and probably Frank Peretti's best novel. It does help if you want to really get a mass audience. You have to not only be entertaining, but also have an edge of controversy. If you can get a, you know, a few good hate readers in there, a few oh, people yeah. who are reading the book to be able to dissuade their kids and their youth group from the bad theology that's spreading around and then also being on a serious enough topic that you can get that little extra oomph from reviews and from being part of, you know, the discourse and people having having takes on it. Um, it's it's interesting how much really popular fiction kind of doesn't get that attention, doesn't get that serious attention. People often struggle, you know, with some sci-fi, with stuff that's targeted at women in particular of thinking those things are, are serious, but having that serious and slightly controversial edge can take you from a pretty good selling book to um, something like a, something like a bestseller. Amen. What these bestselling books really tap into is those topics that we, we don't know all the answers to. Like we, we don't see what goes on in the spiritual realm and we're giving so few clues, even mm-hmm. in the scriptures you know, we, we see one guy that has one angelic encounter in his whole entire life, and that's it. And then with prophecy, we, we see what things are generally going to look like. And there's some specifics, but how that works together and what's symbolic. And that's why there's all the charts about it, because everyone's trying to figure it out. And so it's when you take a hard stance on it, even in an imaginative sense, that it, it, it confirms what some people think, but it, it makes other people suspicious. And you're right, it, it's that friction that causes something to, to really take off because people naturally do that. They, they say, well, I don't really know how this thing works in theology, but uh, here's my best guess. And then when you put it in print, then it really, you know, then it sort of solidifies in a sense that opinion. But the nice thing about fiction rather than a nonfiction book is like, for, like Pretty has said, Hey, look, this is not like an instruction manual. This is not how it actually is happening. This is a, what if, like, what if it's happening this way? And that gives you that freedom to not get so wrapped up in it. Um, because something I see a lot of times in the nonfiction world, in the Christian space, is people take very hard stances on very controversial issues, and then they don't know how to back away from it. They don't know how to say, well, maybe I'm wrong, or maybe it's not quite like this. Whereas fiction, I think, gives you a lot more freedom to take those hard stances, but in a in like a looser way, if that makes sense. The other The other piece of it that you're getting at is that these because these aren't definitive, because they're not clear 110% in scripture or in preaching, 
this also means they're good for conversations. Yes. You know, and when you're analyzing a book as a historian, you don't just want to think about the author and you don't just want to think about the isolated reader. You want to look at the way that these books actually encourage communities, uh, fan communities, but also broader than that. You know, the, the story of, I read this book because my aunt gave it to me, um, or I read this book in order to discuss it with my coworker something like that. Um, that's a really important part of how these books create the conversation and the community that is evangelicalism when it's real um, and how they have an effect on the world. The kind of naive way to think about it is Peretti had an idea. He made it fiction to make it be a little more palatable to people. And then he, he put it out in the world and a bunch of people read it and they believed what he wanted them to believe. I suppose that would be nice, right? If you were an author, if things worked that simply, but but it's it's actually a lot more interesting and a lot more complicated than that. It's Peretti had an idea which involved a bunch of stuff he didn't know and a bunch of stuff he was wrestling with and a bunch of just like, well, what would happen if I did this? And then how what would happen next? And then he put it in a novel and he put it out there and a bunch of people engaged with it imaginatively, creatively, wrongly, you know, people are bad readers, people are smart readers. And then they also engage with it in community, talking to their neighbors, reading it because Amy Grant told them they, to read it, reading it with their wife in the car as they were going to take a new job. And that just means the, the novels help us get into the culture in a bunch of different ways, following a lot of different tendrils. And that can be really interesting. Exactly. A similar effect happened then about a decade later with the novel you cover in your next chapter about Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins that left behind, which is ultimately an initial series of 12 books. And then they tried a prequel trilogy. Uh, and then there was that, then there's a sequel set in the millennial kingdom that we won't talk about here. <clears throat> uh, I liked this chapter uh, as well as the Peretti chapter because I was there. I mean, I was there for the left behind fandom uh, caught up in time for the release of book three. Nikolai in 1997. See, I can just throw all the little niche facts around and I'm pretty sure they're even correct. Oh, by the way, before I continue, you've got to get reading evangelicals because among all the other themes we're exploring here, uh, you'll also find out a factoid that for some reason I never knew of who Tim LaHaye originally wanted to co-write the Left Behind series with him. And that is a direct segue from our last uh, subtopic to this one, but you'll have to get the book to get the answer for that. Yes, that's clickbait on a podcast for you. You, Daniel, in, in your chapter, of course, engaged with respect with Left Behind, uh, certainly telescoping in on book one, uh, but also engaging with this idea that it had been developing for quite some time in the evangelical subculture of the importance of making a decision, making mm -hmm. a decision, make a decision. There's only a binary choice. It's either you, know, you choose Jesus or you choose the Antichrist. I still believe, and for any listener who hasn't, you know, come to that crisis point of needing to repent and believe in Jesus, I still believe that that is necessary. Uh, at the same time, you know, it's also nice to see stories of people who move from disbelief to repentance and belief in Christ more slowly, you know, where it's a little bit more like, well, like Lewis's story, you know, you, you, you suddenly you go to the zoo in a motorcycle and then you come back and you realize at some point in that trip, I became a Christian. Like, I don't know when, but I'm pretty sure it was between time X and time Y. And that, that happens with a lot of people, but it doesn't happen in the left behind series. 
Uh, what does happen is a lot of apocalypse. And I'm an overall fan, but uh, as we've talked about in previous episodes, like I, I don't have a better end times theology, but I'm not certain that you can so neatly or biblically separate uh, the rapture event from the glorious appearing of Christ. Uh, scripture seems to describe this as a single resurrection event, the twinkling of an eye after which death has lost its sting. So after the rapture, nobody can die if you read 1 Corinthians 15. But you convicted me when you mentioned on page 98 this quote, quote, apocalypse-minded Christians have been motivated by their expectations of rapture, the tribulation, and the Antichrist to pay close attention to world events and take an active interest in American politics, both foreign and domestic. There is a myth that fundamentalists disengaged from cultural conflicts because of their theology. End quote. And you cut me into the quick there because I've also kind of suspected this line in the back of my head. Wait a minute. If Christians are just expecting for Christ to return and evacuate them from the world, then why would we try to do anything to improve society? Well, you point out here with respect for the audience of the Left Behind series and a pre-tribulation belief, at least, uh, that for, for folks who believe that, for our Christian brothers and sisters who believe that, these beliefs are not contradictory. Christ could return at any moment, not let's sit back and do nothing, but most people will stay involved. And rightly or wrongly, based on their actions, they do want to be uh, engaged with, with world events and uh, help preserve society in some way before Christ arrives. Yeah, so often people say, well, you can't think this and that at the same time. And it may, there may in fact be logical contradictions. Um, but as a historian and a journalist, I'm more interested in what people actually do. And so whenever someone's like, you can't do this, I'm like, well, here are some people who did. So <laughs> people waiting for the apocalypse, for example, were, you know, really interested in foreign news coverage. And if you've ever uh, worked in, in media, you mm -hmm. know that like publishing a story about Bulgaria is not like the hottest story in your local paper. But people who think the Antichrist might have something to do with Bulgaria are going to pick up that story. People who think that the, the present news portends something about God's timing and what God is doing in the world they're going to pay more attention. They do as a historical fact. And Peretti, uh, not Peretti, and Tim LaHaye, as a pastor in Southern California, was very politically active and was always political active. So, so that um, myth is uh, just factually not the case, and it w helps to dispel with it to understand what, what actually is um, going on. For me, what was really interesting about digging into the first novel is that it is in a lot of ways about this theology. Tim LaHaye had written straight apocalyptic theology before, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't very well, didn't sell very well. So he was interested in like turning it into a novel to get more people to pay attention to it. And it is about politics. I think LaHaye in particular would be very clear. Like he, he um, is very politically active um, from, from like Barry Goldwater on. He is with every leading conservative candidate for president. Like he's there. He wants to show up. He wants to rally Christians. That's a big part of his life. But there's actually a bunch of other stuff going on in this book. Oh, yeah. And to me, the, the, the sort of deepest thing 
was this uh, question or this experience and trying to imaginatively engage people with this experience of what do you do when you see God work in the world and it's so obvious to you that that's God and everyone around you doesn't see it. And other people are just like, I don't know what you're talking about. It seems like a coincidence or it seems like something else or mega, you know, I guess we'll just agree to disagree. You think that that's God and I think that someone just quit drinking. And in this case, the experience is the rapture. And there's this huge divide in the book between the people who think the rapture can only be explained as this biblical event foretold um, in scripture. And people who come up with a bunch of other explanations or say, well, maybe it could be, but it's hard to know for sure. When you remove yourself from the politics and you remove yourself from the theology, I think that's actually a super common experience (laughs) to to feel absolutely certain about something that other people are not certain about. And that's the idea of this book that I think really grabbed a lot of people. And it's the sort of emotional truth of this book that a lot of people wrestled with. A huge theme of the book for me, and I think for a lot of people I knew in, I, I read this in college, or actually I watched the movie in college. So this is the first Christian movie I ever saw in my life. Uh, that, well, the, like a the Kirk Tales. Cameron, the one, Kirk not Cameron the, one, not oh, the yeah. not the Nick Cage one. <laughs> so strange that the Kirk Cameron one is actually better than the yes, Nicolas Cage it, one. It is absolutely. You know, if you better. go back and if you go back and watch, I don't know if you've seen it recently, but I watched it a couple of years ago with some students, and the pilot Rayford Steele in that movie, who the the hero who's not Kirk Cameron. Looks a lot like Mitt Romney. It's a oh, like he a totally startling. Does. That's true. It's like he's, he's the like, Marlboro could be Mitt, man. He was he? the Marlboro man. Yes. He's like Mitt uh, Romney's stunt swag or something. Anyway, yeah. So that but that book, um, I, I didn't read it till after college, but a lot of my friends were reading it, and the big theme for us was the evangelism aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, just right in the title, who's going to be left behind? I was a young believer. I was really on fire. Got involved in campus evangelism and a number of things. And it, it was just really just this zeal of like, I want everyone to know this because the gospel radically changed my life. Coming to know the Lord late in high school, God did some really miraculous things in my life. And I wanted to see other people experience that. And in it, you know, the, the book was genius in that it's like every good book needs a ticking time bomb, right? Like mm-hmm. something's going to happen at the end of this book, unless something else happens. And it's like, it put that sense of urgency in all of us of just like, Jesus is coming back and you don't want to be left behind when he comes back and you can accept him now as your savior. You don't have to wait until all this stuff in the tribulation plays out. You know, Stephen mentioned that myth earlier that that a fundamentalist Christian is just very disengaged, but I, I think this did the exact opposite. It made people go. I want to take people with me. You know, only two things last forever. You know, this phrase really swept every church. Only two things last forever, the word of God and the souls of men. So let's, let's take as many people with us as possible. But it's interesting because when you look at 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul had just written a, uh, the first letter to the Thessalonians talking about the, you know, the second coming of the Lord. And apparently a lot of people just sat around and did nothing. And said, okay, he's coming any day now. And so he had to write Second Thessalonians and say, wait a minute, if a man does not work, he does not eat. And so, yeah, there, there can be that tendency in thinking about the end times of 
lethargy and just disengagement. And, and this is how people criticize the Benedict option, which I think is an unfair criticism. But left behind really galvanized people, I, I feel like, to evangelism. And, and to me, that was the most fascinating aspect of it. It, it defied what people thought end times obsession is going to do to people. Mm-hmm. Though I think the one of the questions that I explore a little bit with this approach to evangelism that's that's imaginatively played out in the book is how much it's about logical compulsion. Mm-hmm. Like it's not inviting people to see that Jesus is good. It's not showing them how the world is so much fuller and more vibrant or you know that 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 moment where um C.S. Lewis is on the motorcycle like he he's thinking about all the myths that he knows yes and how the truth of the myths is so much greater and the the shadow reality is so thin compared to the apprehension of the living god and what happens in left behind is I'm not trying to be pejorative, but I think it's one part fire insurance. You want to be on the right side. Or beast insurance. (laughs) Antichrist insurance. Yes. (laughs) But then the other thing is just the, if I can, if I can explain the logic of the choice in front of you, then it will somehow stop being a choice and you will have to accept, you will have to choose the right way. I'm suspicious of this tendency in myself and in my fellow Christians to um, compel people rather than invite people and to um, I don't know, like force them rather than to respect their freedom and the, the dignity of that. I mean, one of the reasons I think novels are really interesting as a Christian is because they're so invitational and there's mm-hmm. so much about the imagination. So the tension in that book, which plays out in a bunch of funny ways, is that the book itself is doing evangelism through imagination and there's not a single character in that book who would read a novel. <laughs> they're all, <laughs> that's true. No, that's they're true. all like didactic. Let me preach at you. Right. Let me set up a logical problem that will, you'll either have to be like self-deceptive or you'll have to choose the right thing. I think the real theology of that book is actually apologetics. Um, and I put in the, in my chapter, I put it in conversation with um, more than a carpenter, um, yeah, Josh and McDowell, some, yeah. uh, Josh McDowell, and um, and some of um, and some of C.S. Lewis's apologetics too, which Lewis's journey with apologetics is kind of fascinating, right? right. Well, his he, early apologetics, yeah, he where gives he was it trying up. to be, yeah, he, he does. He he almost like he doesn't quite reject his earlier stuff, but he's like that was that's not worth my time. That's not what I should be. Well, it's literally why C.S. Lewis never wrote for Christianity today. He, he, there's an alternate timeline where he did, but there's yeah. literally a letter where he tells, uh, he, he tells them, no, I, I think I'm moving on from that sort of thing. Yeah. They reached out to him and said, please. And he's like, no, I got to do other stuff. I want to write about yeah. witches and wardrobes. It's going to be great. You guys are going <laughs> to love it. Um, well, it seemed very impractical at the time for him to move to those kinds of stories. And you know, for me, it wasn't just the first, Left behind. Like, I actually don't. I'm not all that fond of the first Left Behind book, but you obviously have to get through the rapture before, in my perception, you get to the good stuff. Like, I don't know if I'd have picked it up if, if it was a standalone uh, novel, but by that point, there was already two or three of them. 
Got to get to your I, bunkers. I was in it. Well, not I was in it not for the bunkers, but I, I wanted a world war, my friends. Like I, I wanted to, <laughs> I want to see what the earthquake was going to be about. Demon I, locusts. I'd been listening to Dr. David Jeremiah on the radio, you know, Mr. Mellow from California, you know, talking about the end times <laughs> and angels and things. And so I was familiar with the content. And of course, at that moment in the 90s, it was a very important topic because Bill Clinton was the president and that wasn't cool. And we had Y2K ahead and who knows what's going to happen when the calendars switch the first date in the four digit year. I mean, it's going to be crisis somehow. Something, something end times. I'm trying to be affectionate here, but that's how it was. I was affected by a little of that. But at that point, I'm just in it for uh, this blockbuster story. I want to see how these plagues play out. I'd like the characters as basic as they could be, which Mm -hmm. was the intent of the book. Like, I mean. It may not be everyone's flavor, but you have to respect the intention. Like he's writing below an eighth grade reading level. You you refer to the style, you know, with the common adjective workman. It's with very workman prose. Uh, Jerry Jenkins is super fast and he's cranking it out. Uh, he can write one of these things in a few months going full time. Uh, at least he used to. The intent was, of course, to reach as many people as possible, but also to tell a rip roaring yarn even though the style was just very, very basic and the characters were very basic. I, I still, you know, I see, I, I liked it because of the camaraderie. Uh, these were not Christians who, you know, in the tribulation who were sitting around. Um, and then later in the later volumes, like they're wrestling, like actually, I think Assassins book six, Zach, we've talked about this, came out at the same, same year as the visitation. It may have been both 1999 and a bit of a high point for the Left Behind series because you have the hero, Rayford, the pilot, uh, later played by Nicholas Cage, not great casting. He is in a culture war mindset, like of the worst possible sort. Um, he is trying to determine whether or not he should play a part in assassinating the Antichrist. So this is the understanding that Tim LaHaye has that the Antichrist would reach uh, the the midpoint of the tribulation and counterfeit a death and resurrection to impersonate Jesus Christ. And Rayford is influenced by all these deaths of family members and all the plagues like those can get to a person. Uh, He starts having some PTSD uh, and he gets a special gun and he gets himself to Jerusalem and he imagines that God wants him to put a bullet through the Antichrist's head. Ultimately, and here's a bunch of spoilers, uh, he ends up repenting for wanting to kill Satan's agent on earth because even though his goal may have aligned with biblical prophecy in this universe, his heart was twisted. He was backsliding. Uh, He was stepping back from Jesus and just wanting to fight the Antichrist. And then later on, he goes into hiding in Greece and the underground church helps restore him. Like they, they help him confront his sin and he's a broken man and like, to me, I, I like that moment even better than Jesus Christ arriving at the end of the series, uh, because that there led me through a journey like the visitation in like, what would it be like to be so wrapped up in this battle between good and evil uh, that you end up hating your enemy so much that you hate your enemy more than you love Jesus? And I don't yeah. know if that was their intent, but it worked. It worked for me anyway. It, it was a yeah. real challenge. It it really challenged me too because it, it's that old axiom like be careful when you fight monsters lest you become, become a monster. monster. Mm. And I also feel like this was Tim LaHaye taking a step back and looking at the phenomenon. Or was it Jerry Jenkins? Because Jerry Jenkins is writing the yeah. fiction part, and I, so they're they're push and pull. You know, as as Daniel yeah. points out in his chapter, like Jenkins was initially skeptical about the whole enterprise. 
but I, and I could be wrong, but th- this is just my, my guess. But I, I think this was them looking at the way these books and prophecy focus was sort of creating this other problem in culture where we thought, well, maybe we need to help fulfill prophecy, you know, and, and certainly, mm-hmm. uh, early 2000 political decisions were criticized for this in terms of our involvement in Iraq and, uh, in other things. And, and so, you know, you, I think you get this sort of self-awareness in the book of like, maybe we're not supposed to be, you know, the stars of this story that's unfolding. Maybe we are not the focal point. Um, at least that's, that's how I took it. And that was always sort of this buffer for me in, in terms of how you do sort of get that very dedicated wing of, of Christians interested in end times prophecy. And it's like, we, we need to see this through kind of thing. Um, so I, I don't know that that's just how, how it always affected me, but I, I really just appreciated how they really showed the inside of Rayford Steele going through that kind of devolution of, and just all the ways that he, um, it, it's like how, how in James, it talks about sin when sin is given birth, you know, it, um, it, it drags you to give birth it, it, to, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, how it drag like you get dragged away by your own desires. Like you can't outsource that blame to someone else. And I thought they did a really good job of showing that process of kind of self-deceit and, and um, yeah, just getting consumed by it. This has been 20-Year-Old Book Plots with Stephen and Zach. Amen. <laughs> Absolutely. But formative, though. You no, know, it's like so, it, you... It's so interesting. Yeah. I wanted, to, I wanted to circle back to the thing you were, Stephen, you were saying, Stephen, about the apocalyptic um, sense that was in the air. In the oh, late it was. I was there. I was there. Oh, yeah. It's interesting that that often is given as an interpretation for the book, which was something I, I spent a bunch of time trying to sort through. At the time, if you were reading like the New York Times or the New Yorker, there were regular comments on, man, all of these Christians are reading this fiction. And what is it? What does it mean? And the two interpretations were one about the anxiety, uh, anxiety of the apocalypse, the anxiety of Y2K. Or two, the anxiety of the war on terror and Muslim terrorism, and it was seen as this like political thing with uh, George W. Bush. I tried to figure out when they started becoming bestsellers, um, when they sort of broke that line, and what what actually happened at that moment. And what was really interesting to me is that it it's not in the nineties when um, the first ones come out that they start breaking onto bestsellers lists. So it can't be Y2K because Y2K has come come and gone before people go back and read left behind. And then it's not 2001. It's not nine 11 and the invasion of Iraq of Afghanistan. And it's not 2003 when we go into Iraq. In fact, the week after nine 11, the best-selling novel was uh, Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections, which is an interesting book, but has no apocalyptic anxieties. Um, (laughs) So when it happens is actually with the fourth book, and it's in 2004, I believe. I'm not looking at the notes here, but I believe it's in 2004, when it gets stocked in Walmart. So that ends up connecting to my, we need to pay attention, not just to what are the sentiments that people are feeling, but what is the 
what is the market mechanism and the distribution and, and where books are sold that makes it available to people, um, that gives people a, um, the opportunity to embrace these books and engage with them and hold it up and say, I love this book, or I love part of this book and not this other part, or... Or I love um, to hate this book. <laughs> yeah. No, and so much of the importance of Left Behind is people who actually didn't like it or who read it and thought, well, actually this doesn't feel like my faith or I don't want my faith to be quite so putting me in a situation where I can get caught up in possibly wanting to be involved as an assassin. You know, so it was, I was really fascinated to see that in the early emergent movement, for example, um, emergent Christians mentioned left behind more than any other book. Mm hmm. More than any emergent church book, and in, they in are a positive and using, way or a negative way. They're using it as oh, a foil, definitely right? negative. Okay. Yeah. They're like, yeah. this is That's the really this is the politics. This is the sort of um, the mega church and the American culture that I'm making myself distinct from, which is a really valuable use for a book to say, hey. Not like this, you know. Yeah, it's a line yeah. in the sand for. Well, it's, it's galvanizing. It gives people a cultural object to reposition themselves by. Right, it's right. a surface to shove against, and and to a lot of uh, Christians who back then would call and themselves emergent. Clear. Yeah, well, Christians back then would call themselves emergent, and like the Left Behind series was their Harry Potter series. Like, conserv- what conserv- <laughs> how conservatives at the time viewed the Harry Potter series. That's how emergent Christians, uh, as they called themselves, would view. The Left Behind series, which is kind of surprising because, as I've remarked in uh, another article or two, there's surprising thematic overlap between the Left <laughs> Behind series and the Harry Potter series, right down to an arch-villain who wants to take over the world through false miracles and a bunch of people who get together and, you know, are involved in supernatural acts to oppose him. Like, you know, there's there's plenty of differences, but it's funny how uh, the, the series, which at one time were uh, engaged in battle for the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, they are, they were duking it out for a bit and it's funny how they were kind of similar there. Yeah. One day I will understand all these Harry Potter references, but that is, yes. Well, you need to get into that. It's, it's still a better series <laughs> and it's that same spirit of camaraderie and, uh, and, and even like, um, a lot of what I enjoyed with the left behind, even, even in the first book, there are some gestures towards, I think, proper ecumenism. It's actually mentioned that, uh, I think this is before mother Teresa, presumably we hope got to heaven the old fashioned way. Uh, there's a mention that Mother Teresa disappeared in the vanishings, and there's a more overt mention that the Pope disappeared. And there's unborn some, babies, or oh yeah, um, well that's because of Tim LaHaye's belief uh, sure. as in the age of accountability concept. But yeah, all all very speculative, and um, and all makes sense within their world. But I hope we have a little time, uh, as you mentioned, Daniel, wanting to touch on the shack, and we probably won't get into it in, in as in depth as Left Behind in This Present Darkness. Uh, you've already mentioned how the emergent movement like, was kind of a response to this, what they perceived as the cultural Christianity, uh, a certain conservative take on social issues or the left behind take on rapture theology uh, or, or the apocalypse. Uh, the left behind and this present darkness, I, I don't think it's just my experience, but I'd say that the audience for that was very, there was a lot of overlap. I mean, a lot of thematic overlap, yeah. I think, in terms of apologetics. Uh, unlike some of the other books that you explore in reading evangelicals, uh, The Shack is a different animal. Uh, the Shack was not only published from outside the evangelical industrial complex, you know, people who had been 
ministry or ministry adjacent like Frank Peretti or Tim LaHaye. Uh, but it came from, you know, William Paul Young originally, uh, this guy who had some very negative experiences with cultural Christianity. Uh, and he had this story, uh, as we know, about this uh, man who had a tragedy and then ends up meeting God more or less in the shack. Uh, lots of readers resonated with that. And you go over some of the reasons why and some of the some of what was going on in the fragmenting of what would uh, we would call evangelicalism uh, back then in was the late 2000s that's when the shack came out that's right i was there it's too a, it's a little it's a little tricky to say when the shack came out because it came out that's right in several different ways but 2008 is tends to be the year though that's when um hachette started publishing it so it switched from the company that william paul young and two podcast hosts started windblown media and they um they then transferred it over to Hachette and Hachette started publishing it in Nashville. I wanted to talk about the shack in the book, not just because it sold a lot of copies, but because it kind of marks the um, dissolutions, probably too strong, but fragmentation of the Christian fiction market. Like yes. things just break apart. And the one sign of this is that something can become a best-selling Christian novel without going through any of the traditional gatekeepers. So it originally sells through a podcast. The first thousand copies are pre-ordered through the podcast, uh, and then it's sold out of their garage. This is actually before podcasts are called podcasts. It was an iTunes like audio download and they didn't quite have a name for it. And then it sells primarily through Amazon, you know, and Amazon is opening up to different sellers. And the fact that Windblown Media is not a real publisher, but is kind of a vanity press run out of somebody's garage doesn't really matter. We're happy to sell it. So that that changes what's possible to be sold as Christian fiction. That's that's part of the story. I don't know, but I suspect that one of the um, literary challenges of the shack, which is that it doesn't have a genre, that it actually changes from a crime novel to a spiritual retreat novel to a discourse that's almost not a novel. It's just like different persons of the Trinity explaining suffering. In the early days, that might have actually helped it with the Amazon algorithm. It might have meant that it like came up in more places than if it had just been a straight crime novel. It's a peculiar work, and it demonstrates the peculiar things that have been happening as Christian bookstores started closing, as publishers started vying for space in Barnes and Nobles more than they did in in you know um, Christian bookstores. Or trying to think of how they're gonna platform authors um, through social media instead of, you know, run ads in magazines or something. The other thing I would say, just as a kind of setup for any for talking about the shack, is that if the primary experience of faith in Left Behind is certainty and then trying to force other people to certainty, and the primary experience of faith in this present darkness is struggle. The primary experience of faith in the shack is ambiguity. I think doubt Mm, is probably a little too strong, but it's primarily a book about feeling in between and feeling not quite sure and feeling halfway and experiencing doubt and belief at the same time. 
and it ends up trying to tell a story. Um, we can debate how successful it is, but a lot of people really resonated where that in-betweenness is where you experience God and that's how you live out your, your faith. It has um, some interesting con- literary connections to postmodern novels. It's like oh, for Roland, sure. Roland Barthes. Uh, though I actually think Left Behind is also more postmodern than people acknowledge too. There's this popular literature often has these interesting philosophical high literature things going on underneath. But my sense is that the Christian market, the Christian bookstore, even as it's starting to fragment, is holding open all of these different possibilities of this is what faith could be like. This is what the experience of believing could be like it could be like the experience of tragedy and suffering and abuse and that making you feel ambivalent and ambiguous and slightly alienated from everything around you or it could be like feeling absolute boomer certainty and being angry at people all the time for not being as certain as you are or it could be like having a a really rough job and wishing that your life had worked out differently and yet trying to be faithful anyway. Those are all really different answers to the question, Jesus died and rose again, so what are you going to want to do on a Tuesday? But they're not incompatible answers always. And it's possible for us to rally around the idea that the question is so important that we leave, leave the answers to individual believers and individual consciences. It's interesting. The response that the shack got was, uh, again, illustrative of the difficulty of defining what is an evangelical, because at least my copy has endorsements on the back from Michael W. Smith, one of my mm-hmm. favorite artists, certainly when he's doing his instrumental albums. I like his instrumental stuff, uh, even his Christmas albums. I love those. He loves it. Uh, he's, I mean, of course, Michael W. Smith, again, uh, also on, uh, on the Amy Grant bandwagon. So he's been around for a while, and apparently he was part of this, this present darkness fandom. So now here he is on my copy endorsing the shack. Beneath his endorsement is an endorsement from a person who's actually a a Facebook frenemy of mine, uh, who now has gone so far into deconstruction that he's literally in my comment section on occasion arguing for polyamory. Uh, He's deconstructed so far that he he doesn't even believe that you have to have one wife or one husband. Not everyone who loved the shack was a heretic. And I would say that not everyone who authored The Shack was a heretic, because I like how you mentioned it's not just William Paul Young, the name on the cover, but there's also Wayne Jacobson and another co-author who he was talking with. And Jacobson's come out and said, you know, a lot of things defending the exclusivity of faith. Like, he's like, no, this is not a universalist book. You know, from my perspective, here's what we meant. Whereas William Paul Young went in another direction and said, yes, I'm universalist. I, as you point out in your chapter, I no longer identify as an evangelical. He said, uh, that's in my past, but not my present, and I don't think my future. So the shack, yeah, it's, it's very, I, I hate it when people say divisive, but it, it was just on the scene when people were dividing. Like some evangelicals were starting to go one way culturally, and others were starting to go another way. And then others were just kind of right down the middle, like maybe Michael W. Smith. Again, it's fiction. It it is a sermon, I'd say. I mean, it's very much, he's writing this to be didactic, like as much as as Mm -hmm. other novels, I think. I mean, there's a friend of mine who goes so far to say it's not really fiction. It's just an extended sermon anecdote. And I can see where she would get that idea. I've heard that too, though. The Left Behind has those elements as well. 
Um, oh, absolutely. Has, and also has the multiple authors doing that as well. Yeah. The other, the other piece in the shack is that it's partly a story about abuse or, or trauma. I think a lot and, of people resonated with that and responding to that. And that's, um, that's often in the subtext of, of those debates. And it is, you know, being published right at a time where abuse within churches, abuse by pastors is, is becoming, is coming out, is becoming clear that it's something that's going to have to be dealt with. And so it is a theological attempt to wrestle with that. But I think all of these books, I think any book that really gets to a mass audience is divisive in this kind of way. It is a book that some people are going to not like and think that it's important that they don't like it. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you're just like, man, it's not my thing. But with The Shack, with Left Behind, with This Present Darkness, with anything that sells millions of copies, there's going to be some people who are like, look, it's important to your Christianity that you don't like this book. And part of the interesting thing about evangelicalism is that there's no one who gets to make that ultimate decision, right? We all. Or a hodgepodge, yes. We all have a personal relationship with Jesus, which means that you don't actually have the authority to tell me what that relationship should be like. We all read the Bible, which means we have to argue about it. We don't get to just kind of defer to the guy in charge to tell us what it's about. Um, I I might declare the shack anathema if I was feeling especially cranky, but I'm not the Pope of evangelicalism. I mean, a lot of people did, but that's what's interesting is like, evangelicalism has more gatekeepers than it has gates. Like a lot of people said, this is book, this, this is terrible. And yet people still read it and it was still part of the conversation. And that's, that's the truth of this world. And that's the truth of trying to understand this culture. It's very, uh, evangelicalism is very self-critical and and very self, um, and contested, uh, right? We're all wrestling all the time about as you're describing the shack and the influence of postmodernism. I can't help but thinking of Rob Bell, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he's very much at the center of that. He went his direction, you know, which I, again, like I, I followed a lot of these people in that movement in the early two thousands. Um, and it's just funny how Driscoll came out of that. It's a, that's a whole other conversation. Oh, but, he goes into that in the chapter as well. Yeah, the entire then, context of the movement. And then there's that break between Rob Bell and John Piper, the famous farewell, Rob Bell. Uh, and then, and then a lot, and then, nowadays a lot of people saying farewell john piper and so it's just yeah that is the cycle of evangelicalism yeah and that's exactly i felt like um the this is relatively recent history but most of the history of evangelicalism didn't get me into the themes and the questions that were explaining that moment right where on the one hand you had this hyper masculinity and hyper certainty emerging with people like um driscoll you had a no new reformed movement and the emphasis on on like the depth of reformed theology with people like piper um and then you also had rob bell who wrote love wins and then went and taught surfing classes and like that's that's weird that they were like all together and then all going in these different trajectories the struggle over this novel and the fracturing of the infrastructure that holds the market together helps us get a sense of what was, what was going on. Right. Yeah. So if you don't like the book, but you do wonder what was going on with evangelicals at the ends of 
the Bush years and the beginning of the Obama years, but I know the politics isn't the most important part, but that's the, that's the hinge point we're talking about. Like what was going on? The contention of the, of my book is, Oh, thinking about William Paul Young and thinking about the very popular, but kind of strange novel can really give us insight. Every once in a while too, I I did notice that probably the part that I least liked about the shack I would say we've almost done some self-correcting for that. We collectively referring to the evangelical movement. I wasn't thrilled about Young's portrayal of the Trinity-ish in the book. Um, I could see where it was coming from, but I, I, I disliked mostly what they were saying more than the presentation. Um, I think his mm. co-authors maybe helped to, to rein that in a little bit, try to, try to put that more in, within biblical orthodoxy, it seemed to me. But my issue wasn't so much with the, the, the God presentation. Uh, as with the theme throughout the book, I mean, not just uh, Christian institutions, you know, the Bible, uh, expositional preaching, those can't help you. This experience will. But the experience also leads uh, what I felt was a very offensive direction in which Mac, the main character, is taught by the Trinity basically to let go of his desire for certainty and even justice. And then by the end, and you don't go into this, but by the end of the shack, he basically has to let go of his anger uh, against the person who brutally assaulted and murdered his uh, daughter and in a sense, forgive this enemy, just let it go, just release it, which is putting it in our contemporary context, the exact wrong approach to those kinds of assaults and violations of a person. Uh, I, I don't think that even uh, people now who were fans of the shack then would carry things to that conclusion. Uh, and in fact, there's been much wrong done in evangelical churches and anywhere else when people just say, well, you need to just learn to forgive that person who mm. assaulted you or abused you spiritually or physically or whatever. Just let go and let God, he'll take care of it. And, and I go, no, we actually do have a need for certainty. We have a need for justice. God has put that in us and such that we can pursue that in our context before Jesus gets here, like we need to do that. We need to kick out abusive pastors. We need to lock up rapists and throw away the key. And I just felt very hollow at the end of the shack. Like I know it was an invitation just to ask what if, uh, but I, I think that was an overly certain answer where there should have been ambiguity. Just let go and you know, God will take care of it. And, you know, maybe the attacker is just his child too. And it seemed to be what he was saying. And that part, I think, I think a lot of people have have corrected for that, and we have more pressure, right pressure, for accountability uh, among evangelicals and among particularly pastors and leaders to punish these kinds of behaviors. And I would be surprised if Young himself, as someone who experienced abuse, yes, really believed that accountability was, I don't know, not important because certainty or something like that. But I do think from, you know, from reading him and from my own experiences in the world and and, and talking to people who have suffered abuse, mm-hmm. there is this need or there is this struggle where on the one hand, you hate the thing that happened to you. On the other hand, it made you who you are. And so if you just hate it so much that you wish it never happened, that ends up involving some like self-loathing 
mm-hmm. which Jung talks about pretty extensively, that experience of self-loathing. And so you end up kind of wishing that you didn't exist. And that ends up being quite destructive. And you have to find a way to be happy that you exist and to be able to experience love as you are without endorsing the thing that made you that person. That's a really tricky thing. And, and that's where I see Jung's declaration of the importance of ambiguity actually being kind of helpful to people who've gone through abuse, who read it through that lens. And I'm kind of shocked at how many people read it without noticing that it's about abuse and trauma at all. It's really interesting. interesting. Some of the reviews, uh, Mark Driscoll reviewed it. He hates it. He specifically hates um, the idea that there could be any feminine aspects of God. That's the part that really gets him. He doesn't at all notice that like, oh, this is about an abused abused person trying to find a way to say that God is good and the world is good. And I can be loved but also the thing that created me is horrific and i don't know i can never ever say that that thing is okay or or good so ambiguity ends up being important and i i think that's just the human tendency to we pick out the things we think a book is emphasizing and then measure that against what we think are the most important values there's also some weird racial stuff in that book that does not hold up that no one really talks about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's pretty uncomfortable. I don't even want to quote a big, big mom or whatever the name is for, for yeah. God, the well, father ish. Uh, I mean, I don't want to cancel <laughs> William Paul Young, but I, I think the same dialogue would not go over nearly so well. Now, if you're supposed to imagine God at all, imagine him most fully imaged in, in Jesus Christ, which is by the way, I think where the shack is strongest, where Mac is hanging out with the second person of the Trinity, uh, who is basically imagined in the novel in a, as he would have appeared, or as presumably he would still appear now because Christ still has his body to this day and, and he always will. Let us leave the shack with all of its Thomas Kincaid-ish glory with the little smoke coming out the chimney and the flowers blooming and the deer scampering in the woods and ask how Christian-made fiction could or should grow from here. So as you point out in your last chapter, Daniel, there's some political stuff in there too particularly when we're dealing with the understanding of evangelicalism as a political movement, you get into that there. My interest mainly is, is in how you explore the fact that a lot of the evangelical industrial complex, at least so far as publishing has fragmented. Uh, It's not just a matter of belief, but of economics. It's not the shack's fault. Uh, It is, uh, and I don't even know if it's just Amazon's fault. It's just the technology change and readers expectations change. And the bookstore that you describe in your opening chapter is closed. I mean, that's whether it's family Christian stores or Lifeway stores, at least those chain stores are no longer gone, even if Lifeway still sells online and there's lots of smaller outlets who do it in addition to Amazon. I did, though, see a recent tweet from you about uh, surprising growth in at least Bible sales and book sales at more independent Christian bookstores. So maybe we see some signs of rebirth there, some new shoots from the stump, as it were. And then I would say that for Zach's in my perspective, we have seen slow yet sure growth in the readership for Christian-made fantastical novels. A lot of people following in the steps uh, incidentally set by William Paul Young and others and going independent. Some of them get picked up. Uh, the books will trade publishers. Like there's several old fantasy titles from Bethany House uh, that are now going to a smaller press called Enclave Publishing. Uh, and then we see even a, a more... Um, a mainstream figure like Andrew Peterson 
uh, whose books, The Wingfeather Saga, I'd, I'd say they basically won the contest for new Christian-made fantasy uh, that we didn't even know we had. I mean, now he's getting a TV series with Angel Studios, uh, the producers of The Chosen. Is this, do you think, if you want to speculate here, do you see any future in rebirth for this side of evangelical culture uh, in, in these new movements? Or, more negatively, are we doomed to not read novels much, if at all, and just watch cable news and pay attention to politics all the time? Is this the doom that we are to suffer? I would say suffer. Where we don't have an evangelical subculture in fiction, we only have that subculture in politics and causes and articles and podcasts and all that. Being a historian doesn't give you a lot of authority to speculate on the future. If you're a historian, you get a time machine. You're only really any good if you go backwards, not forwards. But I'm really convinced that history is a lot of contingencies, and it doesn't necessarily have to go one way or the other. There are lots of forks in the road, and I'm pretty sure that whatever happens will be surprising. If history teaches us anything, it's that we should expect to be surprised. I do think there will be more Christian fiction. I do think there will be another mammoth bestseller that people fight about and that feels really important and it feels really important to have an opinion about and it will shape a bunch of people's imagination and connect people in community and in conversation. But the market is changing fast enough that I think that's the, the as a historian, that's the, the question that I'm asking. Like, what will be the new infrastructure that emerges that supports this? What will be the, um, the networking platforms that make this kind of relationship possible and this kind of imagination possible? Books are material objects. They need authors. Those authors need to eat. They need editors and publishers. And, and what are the real world conditions that, that make it possible? I've heard a lot of people bemoan Christian fiction not being good enough. If it were going to be better in whichever way you think better means, it's got to be because there was funding, there was support, there were awards, there were schools, like I don't, whatever, whatever the infrastructure is going to be. There were opportunities to engage and improve and experiment. So that's the thing that I'm trying to keep an eye on rather than like, looking for one particular novel that'll happen to break out is like, what are the, um, yeah, collaborative efforts and infrastructure that's going to support something that helps us define evangelicalism and helps us uh, wrestle with this still really urgent question about how are you going to live out your faith? If Jesus is real, what are you going to do? Yeah, I, I think we are barely at the infancy of where Christian fiction could go. Because we've matured from the CCM movement of the 80s and 90s now to this sort of like independent Christian music, but just a very serious and very dedicated approach to it. I mean, my church writes all its own music. We have tons of church staff who are just musicians full time. But, you know, I don't know a single church where there is a fiction author on staff. Well, that's because I, I mean, you sing songs in worship. You don't read from novels in worship. Singing better than writing, right? Right. And we, you know, we have tons of commissioning ceremonies for missionaries, never seen a single commissioning ceremony for an author. I think until we get to that point, we're, we're going to be in these very 
early stages, but uh, th- that's kind of the marker that I look for. Mm-hmm. Um, I did recently listen to a, an interview with someone, and I, I, the name escapes me, but th- there was actually a guy that uh, recently said that he has sort of been commissioned to be a full-time writer, but he was already a writer. He was already a successful writer. I think he works for the Gospel Coalition. Oh, it's uh, and, Jared Wilson, wasn't it? Yes, I think that that's was it. him. Yeah. And, and again, it's just like, that was like the aha moment. I'm like, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. We need more of that. And it, and until we get there, like you said, Daniel, we're just going to lack that support system and we can only expect so much. I mean, it, 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 we're in the very early days, just like when Hudson Taylor, you know, was not only going as a missionary, but trying to build a missionary network. It was just mm-hmm. completely unheard of to his culture at that time. Yeah. And the, the comparison to missionaries is really useful. Like some of this, some of whatever happens in the world of missions is about calling and God calling people and people being open to that calling. Absolutely. But how missionaries get funding is a really important explanation for where missions happens and how it happens. And it's a really important part. And I think too often when we think about novels, we just think, well, are people good enough? Well, are people are creative enough? Is the evangelical imagination robust enough? And not, where's the genius award that's going to help someone just write novels and quit their factory job to produce novels? Yeah. Or where's the education? You know, where's the time to learn your craft? Like people aren't just born writing good novels. It takes a lot of work. And what are we doing to kind of support that? Yeah. And that's the production side. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm mainly interested personally in, in the support side, like readers will need to reward these stories when they get published and, and they do, but occasionally they will just go under the radar. Uh, and I think it's a matter of, I hope you mentioned education, you know, not just training authors to be better, but I think training, uh, training readers uh, in more, I would argue more biblical expectations. Like what is the purpose of Christian fiction? Like why, why should we have Christians writing books at all? Why can't we just have people writing books? I would argue that the, the Christian author has a vantage, has an ability to explore not just our own subcultures, but explore issues of transcendent truth and beauty uh, that general market fiction uh, isn't interested in and, and nor should it be. Uh, the best Christian authors will go into those places that are not always just familiar, but that are challenging. That's why I like the visitation so much. It's still, as far as I can tell, it remains unique in that it explores the world of its own audience, like in a way that I don't see a whole lot of stories do that want to keep the churches non-denominational, uh, if you see any local churches at all. Uh, and some of the best uh, fantasy or science fiction I've read you know, may not be set in the real world, but it seems to me more immediately relevant to some of the issues that we're dealing with now. And yeah, I, I agree with Zach that I think, I think we are in the infancy of a possible rebirth and it'll be interesting to see what structures play into that. We don't have the physical bookstores anymore. Uh, there's not a whole lot of book clubs among younger readers, but there are a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of uh, Christian resources on the web, whether it's Christianity today or the gospel coalition, any of those uh, that are recommending and reviewing books. Uh, Lore Haven is focusing on reviewing the best Christian-made fantasy and science fiction. And here's another thing I would watch is the homeschool market. Homeschoolers devour books. And uh, within the past few years, I've been blessed to join the Realm Makers Bookstore, which goes to these conferences with books from mainstream and small Christian publishers, mostly fantasy, science fiction, those kinds of things. 
And these kids will just walk away from the booth with stacks of the stuff, old books, new books. And then they will come back the next day and say, hey, you got a few more. I, I finished books one through six. I'm ready for book seven now. And these folks just buy them by the truckload. An event like that is probably more uh, more where this distribution is going to happen. And I think the next stage then will be seeing these stories as not just valuable for the kids who need a wholesome alternative, but they're valuable for Christian grownups, uh, not only to form community, but to play out these uh, these very real world questions uh, in, a, in a fictional environment. That last audience you're talking about, I think, really underscores the value for Christians of writing books that are that are wrestling with real issues mm -hmm. the the authors tackling stuff that they need to wrestle with to me one of the the challenges as an art form is when you're talking about faith it's really easy to start thinking of it as a platform that's teaching people stuff instead yeah. of a platform yeah. to use to explore things that matter to you and one of the one of the things I consistently try and do is get people to think of their readers as sophisticated and creative and as smart as you. And I think if you're writing for people who care about the same stuff that you care about, that wrestle with the stuff that you wrestle with, that you know know God as vibrantly as you know God, then you actually write better literature. You write stuff that that is more moving and is more compelling. And if there is a rebirth, I think that would be my personal hope is that people would think of it less as a platform of like, I'm going to teach those idiots who don't know about biblical imagination and more, you know, write the novel that you want to read, write the novel that addresses the thing that you kind of don't know how to deal with. To me, that's where, that's where fiction that has that deep faith element can be transformative versus just a sugar-coated sermon. Amen. I share that purpose so much, and I really appreciate uh, your willingness to encourage respect for the readers while challenging at the same time. You can love people and challenge people at the same time, but if you hover over them and just throw a story in their general direction that's just designed to make the teaching go down more easily, uh, that's not missional. That's not incarnational. You know, Jesus touched down to earth and stayed there for decades. And he taught not only in parables and similes, but also in the nonfiction, He's switching back and forth. And uh, I think the better we can have creators who are willing to stick with what they know, you know, the stories, the imagination and challenge, but also love their readers, then the closer we get to that kind of Christ-like discipleship, not teaching, not preaching, that's the job of teachers and preachers. But I do think that the best Christian storytellers have a role in the discipleship process. So Daniel, uh, where can we find reading evangelicals and follow your work with Christianity Today and otherwise? The book is for sale wherever fine books are sold. Uh, I wish it were actually for sale in Christian bookstores, but I don't know that that's true. But you can find it at Erdman's, which is the publisher, and it's for sale on Amazon. I'm public on Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot, sharing uh, news uh, about evangelicals. And I'm at Christian Today, reporting on evangelicals and for evangelicals. Check it out. All links in the show notes. As always, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing what you explore next. Thanks. Good to be here, guys. Thanks for joining us. 
Stephen, I really enjoyed that conversation with Daniel, and I would love to hear from you, our listener, what you thought. Were these books part of your childhood or adulthood, as they are for me? How have they affected your faith? How have they affected your view of faith, either as a struggle or something that leads to flourishing or something that leads to healing or something else? So send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. You can also find our feedback form at lorehaven.com slash podcast or tag us on the socials. You can find us by searching Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for Lorehaven. Also, subscribe to lorehaven.com. Go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe. We get new articles every week, new podcast episodes every Tuesday, and new reviews of the best Christian-made fantasy, sci-fi, etc. on Fridays. Next on Fantastical Truth, dragons, light, raiders, light raiders, one shepherd boy with four companions, plus a talking silver wolf, begin their quest to restore the light raider order, destroy a portal, and stop an invasion. So begins novelist James R. Hannibal's Light Raider Academy series book one, Wolf Soldier. This book releases Tuesday, October 26th. And we are hosting James again at Fantastical Truth to explore this new young adult fantasy. Meanwhile, whether you grew up reading Christian fiction, the Amish romance, the romance, the end times, the spiritual warfare, or the deconstructive shack thing, whatever that was, or if these books are completely new to you, this is a way of understanding who Christians are. It's a question of identity, not just as an academic exercise, but of understanding who we are and comparing ourselves and our enjoyments to what God would have us do. I agree with Daniel that it's really about Jesus and the fact that he died and rose again and what we are to do in response. That's the biggest question to explore as we continue to enjoy Christian-made stories and seek and find fantastical truth.